spoken me. I went to sleep that night without knowing that it would be the last night I ever spent in that bed at my parents' house in London. Meredith, my mum shook me awake. The room was dark, making it obvious it wasn't morning yet, or not time to get up for school anyway. Mum, I mumbled in my half-asleep state. It's time to go. Everything I told you about those stories is true. It's time for you to leave us so you can train to be a protector. Your dad and I, we've done everything we possibly can to prepare you. First Charge is the first book in the Destiny Initiative series by Amanda The book can be purchased in paperback from Amazon. The e-book can also be purchased on Kindle, Kobo, Apple Books and many others. Spoken Thank you today for tuning in to Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up at the beginning of 2016 and as of recording has over 200 sessions in our archive. Although the podcast can be heard on Anchor, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, YouTube and literally 10 or 11 other networks, the full archive can be found at Spoken Label, all one word, spokenlabel.bandcamp.com. On the Bandcamp, it is set as pay what you want. So you are entitled, if you wish, you can download it or stream it for nothing. But if you to throw me a couple of pennies my way, it is always a term they're grateful to help me maintain the operating costs and future running costs of this podcast. Enjoy. Spoken Label. Hi guys, Andy N, Spoken Label, back in the house. I'm on Zoom on a bright, sun, sunny Sunday afternoon, actually. So, ah, I've got a good podcast I've been looking forward to today. This is my first one recording for 2001. Even though we're in on the 3rd of January, I've had about three weeks off, so it's been brilliant. But we've got a special one to start off with today, because the lady in question, I've just told her that all the people have recommended her to me. And I'm, I'm sure I've missed people off this as well, but she's a really, probably, I think it's on really me up at the moment, and she'll be embarrassing me to tell her that as well. But Cathy, Cathy Garson's with us today. And Cathy, would you like to tell people about yourself and tell them, obviously, who you are? where you come from, a bit about yourself generally so we can get chat and start talking. Okay, thanks Andy for having me on. Um, yeah, blown away that some people have recommended me, really humbled by that, so thank you to all the people that did. Um, my name's Cathy Carson, I grew up in Belfast in the 70s and 80s, I'm currently living in a little village in County Down, just about 20 miles from Belfast. Um, I've always written, um, right back to school, I remember even as young as seven years old and we used to have to write stories in our jotters and then copy them out into our good books and I remember <laughs> not wanting to do that I remember writing a new story in my new good book instead of copying the story out because that was just boring to me um one of the things that sticks in my mind is in school as well we were if you went to PE class and physical education if you didn't have your kit you had to write a story as punishment. Well, I never brought my kit because I was much happier <laughs> writing the story. So that was a win-win for me. Oh, um, so it's always something that I've done. Always brilliant. something that I've done. I've always expressed myself through stories and through writing. And I've always found that much easier because I'm quite shy and I find it difficult sometimes in social situations. So I've always just find it easier to, to put things down on paper. I think as a writer, I think, and certainly not when I first started writing, I mean, I was incredibly shy, and it's. I think the more you do it, and more you interact with people as a writer, do you think you lose your shyness to a degree? I think it's 
the last couple of years have, have really, really helped. Um, one of the first events I ever did was um, an event in Armagh in County Armagh mm. called Flesh Fiction. And uh, it was a story called Spectrum. And I remember submitting this story and the stories are, are chosen and then you get to read them out or not. And I was chosen to read and it was the first thing I'd ever done. And uh, the thought of going into a room full of people where I didn't know anyone absolutely terrified me. And uh, I went and I nearly cried the whole way there. And I cried afterwards too. I was just completely overwhelmed. I shook the whole time. My pages shook, I shook, my voice shook. Um, and I thought it went really badly. Um, but from that came a radio interview and I got to do that piece on the radio. So it couldn't have gone as badly as I thought. I think um, it's usual case, so Alex. It, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, I thought that the next time I go to an event, I set myself little challenges, Andy, if that makes sense. So I set myself a challenge to, to speak to two people. The next time I thought, I'm going to speak to two people that I don't know. Um, and I, I built it from there. Um, but what I have really found is in Northern Ireland and on Zoom and in the whole writing community, people are so welcoming. They really humble you. You know, they'll, they'll welcome you in and they'll say hello and they'll make sure that you feel like you fit. Um, and that, that has really been humbling for me and has really helped to strengthen my confidence in meeting people and going to events where I don't know anyone, which is something I never would have seen myself doing before. Yeah, of course, completely. I can remember what I was like when I first started performing in Manchester. I was, I was like that, the first one or two. This before I got diabetes as well. I remember I used to go like I needed a good stiff drink before I went on stage. And after a good stiff drink, after I went on stage, and my first one or two were like, I used to stumble a lot of my words, and you were saying, well, you've got, to, people won't necessarily know this, but you've, got, you've already got a stammer, haven't you, sometimes? And, yeah, and you I talk stammered too when fast. I was younger, yeah. Uh-huh. If I talk too fast or I get really nervous, my words just start to, to stick in my chest. Um, yeah, it's something that has always happened. Um, even like giving, ha- I'm a nurse, and when <laughs> I'm giving handover, sometimes if there's too many people in the room, I can find myself giving the handover and all the words just get tangled, so... It's something that, that's always happened. Um, but doing poetry and performing has really helped to, to work with that as well and, and standing in the piece and hiding inside the piece. So when I'm performing, I'm not really feeling like I'm there. I'm hiding inside that poem um, and I'm performing the poem so I don't feel any exposure at all. So it's it's a lot easier for me to do that than it is to read. Yeah. Now, you said before, obviously, I know you said you've been writing since you were a child and it's not, it's not my property to work at your old, how old you are. Now, you're about my age, I reckon, straight away. Because I know, I know that's why so we get on great, like you mentioned 70s and 80s. And I thought, yeah, that's my background yeah. as well. But um, yeah. have you found, in, as you've got older, has your writing changed and has it, has it developed? Goodness, you- yeah. Yeah, my writing's really changed in, in the last two years. So the second time that I went to read, um, the first time was such a disaster with shaking and shaky pages and I couldn't read them. I decided that I would learn off the piece so that if the pages shook so hard, I couldn't read them, it didn't matter. And I ended up not using my pages at all. I ended up just standing in the piece and just going for it without looking at the pages at all. And something about that just really freed me. It felt like flying. It's the only way I can explain it. I just felt like something had lifted. Like I had, I just felt amazing um, just to stand in the poem and let the poem take you was just a completely different experience from reading from a page. And I thought, this is it. This is how I can do this and not be afraid of it and and stand up here in front of people and just immerse myself in and go for it and not worry about pages. So 
from then on, I stopped using pages and I don't actually use pages when I write. So oh, wow. the writing became more about how it sounds and how it feels for me to do it and how it feels for me to deliver it than actually putting the words on page. So a few weeks ago, I sat down and I had to write down all the stuff that I've been doing on Zoom this year. And I had like 16,000 words of stuff that was just recorded on audio that oh has never found pages a place on paper because I just write by audio. It's recording sentences and recording phrases and looping them together and learning them as I go. Um, so my whole way of writing has changed from this performing. It has yeah. really changed. I don't write on paper. That's incredible, that one. It reminds me a lot of... Um... Have you ever heard of the American writer Spalding Gray? No. He's, he died a few years ago, but he did this very similar to you. He used to go on, I think, if more improvised than yours, he used to, he was known for like, New York actually, going onto a stage and going doing like a set for half an hour, nothing planned at all. He'd go on and just yeah. do it completely off the top of his head. Then he'd go wow. and do, he'd, he'd do the same, the same, he'd get after the same thing another week somewhere else. He'd go along and wow. do the same story again. And let it develop its own pace and build up and record it, cut all bits and pieces together. And eventually, yeah. over time, with the full tours of learning that way, it's identical to what yeah. you're doing there. It's like that's incredible. Guy yeah. couldn't do that. <laughs> it's it's about for me. It's about the character. So someone said to me a few weeks ago, you know, we were trying to work out am I a poet or am I a storyteller? And, and someone said to me, Kathy, you don't write poems or stories. You write people. Yeah, um, yeah, I write people. Yeah. That's so spot on. That I think so. Yeah. Um, do you know what you should tell you? Tell people you're a people teller. Yeah, <laughs> people teller. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I'm stealing no. that one, Andy. <laughs> oh yeah, welcome. Go for it. I'm a storyteller. Yeah. I, I'm a storyteller with poems. I tell a lot of people's lives, yeah. and I can very, very good at doing that sort of thing, making people come alive with the pieces, whether they're true or yeah. not. But your your case, yeah. you said, I what I've heard of you, you tell the full stories. What you tell. In the realms of a- yeah and some of that stuff is mine and um, some of it is, is completely mine some of it is verbatim mine and um, some of it is stuff that I've been through but I've pushed it through another character and pushed that feeling through other experiences that are similar and um, not all of it is my own and sometimes people think that it is and if, if I have lived the life all my characters have lived God I've had a, a crazy life um, so it's not all mine but I just like to the aim for me is to create empathy and to to educate people about life experiences that they haven't had. And um, if I can leave that room and someone has learned something about a life experience they haven't had themselves, then I've done my job. Yeah, um, and that's always where it's about for me. I think obviously, doing the day job you do, I you know you're quite as you're a nurse, and that would yeah. come from that and reflect a lot in your work because you meet as a nurse, you uh-huh. meet so many people, don't you? And it's yeah. like you wouldn't obviously go along write people's lives down on paper but it, it would influence the way you think and write all the time that would I could see it straight yeah, away if you work. get to watch people yeah so I have a whole you know and they'd say show don't tell you know I have a whole catalogue in my head of of what sadness looks like of what getting bad news looks like of what recovery looks like I've got a whole catalogue of how that looks in a person and in different people so it's really difficult we all we all as writers gather from our lives so it's really difficult not to let that stuff filter through. Um, I would never write about somebody specifically, but yes, that stuff definitely has an influence on, on how you shape your writing and how you put stuff across 100%. Have you found then, obviously, as you're growing up, when you first started writing, was there any 
writers that really grabbed you at the time that made you want to become a writer? Or did it all just come naturally, really, over time for yourself? A lot of it's just been myself. um, But probably, goodness, and you're going to laugh. There was um, the first thing I ever did out loud years and years ago. I was 15 years old, and at the time I was in, like, a Christian group. Wow, um, wow, that yeah, is a that, that, yeah, that, that I is didn't a flip expect. Around for me. <laughs> Considering that at 18 I was working in the beta as a dancer, there's a bit of a flip side to that. But at that oh, time, wow. anyway, I was <laughs> I was 15 and I was in a, a Christian group, and there was a poet, a performance poet called Adrian Class, and he had a poem um that he did. And I remember watching it on video, and I had a video of it, and I watched it on the VHS video over and over and over again, and I learned it off and it was just a really fun poem to perform. It had real funny lines in it. And, and back then I was trying to be funny, I think, and, and I'm not a naturally funny person. Um, so I think what I learned from those experiences to, to just write what you write. Um, no one else has the voice that, that you have. You can you write it your way and not to try and imitate anyone else. Um, that's, yeah. that's what I learned from those experiences when I was younger, was to try and not fit into a box and just do what I do. Yeah, you write it from the heart, basically. I get it completely. That's what I do myself. I'll come on stage and I might I'll have, I can have the audience cracking up, but when I get onto the poem, I'll be, I'm always serious. That's, that is yeah. a bit of a contradiction with me. So, but yeah, I get you completely. And that's why I mean, the work you do, you write from the heart. That's why, as I said, I've had so many recommendations come through for you, the spoken label. You're right. It's, it's where you're right because you, you've been honest all the time. And I think Thank doing you. the job you do, that applies to it as well, really, doesn't it? As well. Yeah, it's a it's a tough job. I, I am a nurse. I'm a, a cancer nurse first and foremost. Um, but I'm also a counsellor, Andy. I don't know if you oh, knew that. No, I did know um, that one. So tell I'm us about that then. I'm yeah. a trained therapist. Um, so I've done, I've worked with people from every spectrum of life. Um yeah, from addiction through to depression and anxiety to alcoholism, domestic abuse. So I do have a, a range of, of experiences with life of my own and, and with working with people in, in difficult situations. So it's been really good because because of that and because of that background and that knowledge over the last year and a half or so, there's been charities that have gotten in touch with me and asked me to commission pieces on homelessness or child loss or, oh, or things that, so that it's led to different opportunities as well for me as a writer, which has been really great. I think it does, because like is when you start doing writing, like you're doing, and I say for me, really, in a different way, is like opportunities open up automatically to yourself, naturally, don't they? People see yeah. your work, and like you said, charities contact you, they've seen your work. And then what you do stuff, I've, I've, I've been asked to do stuff like that myself. And like, yeah. I, I do, do like a regular column for somebody tribune, and that came because somebody saw my work and liked it. And oh, Andy might be good at doing that. And I hadn't done it before. <laughs> but you do like it, it comes natural, doesn't it? So, yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, like I said, obviously, we've been in lockdown for nine months now, haven't we? And it's terrifying. But how have you found it then going on to Zoom meetings? Because like, you're Thanks. like me, it was a completely different experience, isn't it, really? It's very different. Um, yeah, Zoom for me has been really incredible. Um, really welcome environment, I have to say. Um, the first Zoom I did was Ubi High with Clive Oseman and Nick Lovell. I'm due um, to speak to Clive. In guys, couple, I'm due to speak to Clive in a couple of weeks. That's yeah. Nine, so oh, fantastic, fantastic. Clive has been very generous with me as well. Um, incredibly good to me, him and Nick both. Um, they, so they, 
they gave me my first ever headliner. I've never done a headliner before. Um, so they gave I've me my first now. ever headliner. Yeah, they were awesome. Um, really supportive and really bigged up the gig and got me lots of support in. So yeah, they were really, really great. Um, yeah, and I've just gone to do other things. Um, a few other headliners came from that. And yeah, it's just getting my voice out there. But what I've really loved about it is how international it's got. That's what's really blown yeah. me away. I don't know about you. Yeah, Are you same. finding the same? Yeah, the night I do a speakeasy, we try to keep that more local base, but we do let people want some non-local read because I want it. The night is going to be coming back in live in person, and I don't think we'll get people flying over from, from Belfast for our nights regular scholarship. <laughs> I would like it, but anyway, I don't think it will. But yeah, I know what you mean. But I've um, I'm going to ask you out of curiosity. What's the longest, the furthest way person you've seen read so far? I've seen two ladies from Australia, one from uh, a full family from Nigeria and two blokes from Russia, so a Moscow so far. But you get somewhat from it, don't you, as a writer? Yeah, I think I've, I've heard probably the same people that you've heard as well, because there seems to be almost like a Zoom family that goes around all the different Zooms. Um, Australia, Nigeria, South Africa, yeah, just America. Um, I do Nashville every week on a, on a Saturday night at 12 o'clock, and there's a group that, of us Zoom into that- Nashville. Is that the midnight, is it? Or midday? What? Yeah, that's, we call ourselves the midnight poets because it's midnight for us here when we do it. So it's it's a tough one. you got to stay up until 2 a.m., but it's always worth it. And I've just yeah. really enjoyed it, Andy. And I'm learning all the time. Every Zoom I do, I learn. You know, it's like a, an education. This is still new to me. And I'm still open to learning. And I'm, I'm loving all the learning. People bring their craft and they present it so well. And I'm just blown away by people. It's just been amazing. Yeah, I've got that. And I think you find, don't you, over where we have that nine months, you've made friends and I've made friends. Like, and in the most unexpected, yeah. you just can't predict what's going to happen next on it. Because, like, um, off outside poetry, I do a wrestling podcast. It goes up about one to six weeks or so with a poet from mm-hmm. Essex called Dre Zaya. Uh, yeah, no. uh-huh. And a lad from, oh, where's he from? Southern Ireland, Paul McManara. And Paul is absolutely okay. hysterical. Um, but those two. <laughs> Those two didn't know each other. I didn't know. I knew we were a few years ago because of something else. But I suppose we could be. So lockdown happened. And we were doing a podcast of wrestling for about six weeks. And we all it is, is us three was winding each other up for about 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and you do like it. You made friends, don't you? Like, and it's, yeah, lockdown, that's been amazing. I've, I've loved that. Yeah, I find that too. You, you would never think that friends do that. But you can develop a friendship and a relationship with these people. And it's... Yeah, and they feel real, you know, they they feel real. And we, we're all talking about, hopefully, whenever the world opens up, that, that some of us will meet up. And, and I really hope with all my heart that that, that happens. You know, there's some guys that I, I really want to say thank you to that have been incredible. Yeah, same for me as well. I want to meet certain people and it's But also, well, I think the way society's going, is Zoom, for example, I think is here for good now. And I can see, yeah. tell me your thing on this one. Do you think will Zoom readings will still carry on? I think the live scene will come back again, but I think Zoom readings are here to stay anyway, one way or another. Goodness, I, I hope they do. Um, I hope they do from a, a purely selfish point of view because it's just amazing to hear everybody and, and to join in. But yeah, I think like everyone, I miss live gigs. I miss the energy in the room um, and I miss that, that connection and that people with legs. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I think a, a mix of both would be amazing. If we can manage to do a mix of both, that would be fantastic. 
yeah, I agree with you completely with that. Do you have any ideas what, what you want to do with your work next? I know you've had a few bits and pieces published, haven't you, as well, because I've been reading up on you the other day. Could you see yourself bringing a book out or maybe an album even with the way you record your recording? Goodness, uh, you know what? I'm, I'll probably shoot myself in the foot for saying this, but getting it in print doesn't make me as excited as as being up there. Um, there's something about being up there and standing in it that, that really fires me up and fires my adrenaline up more so than, than seeing it in black and white. Um, and maybe that's to do with the way that I write it as well. I'm not sure. It likely but is. What I think, I think what you've been telling me, I think the way your work's developed in the past two years, with you just doing the recording side of it, and you want 16,000 words to write off. <laughs> my God. Yeah, that's what I mean. You do like it. I think you find that with it. It's You've you've gone in a different direction at the moment, probably, haven't you, really? So. Yeah, yeah. And I just find it hard to submit, because some of my pieces are three to five minutes long, so it's hard to find even anthologies that will accept pieces that long. Um, but I think I would love to do a one-woman show. I have a little character um, piece that I do called November Sun about a homeless girl, and she's got mm. wings on her. She still has has more inner that I'd love to develop and see see where that goes. Um, so that would be what I would love to do next. If if I can pull that together, that that would be the aim to to do a one-person show and see see where I can do with that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think as writers, there's usually one or two, there's a couple of ways you can normally go. You either end up going towards publication or books or doing a, doing a show like you said, or do what I do, and it's something different, different altogether. But I do a lot of like ambient music and speak over the top of it. So I give it like a band feel with a different feel altogether. But yeah, yeah. There's, there's always ways you can go with things. And yeah, and I've got one woman show is a fantastic idea. So good luck with that for yourself. So yeah. but that's pretty well all my questions, Kathy. So. If people want to find out more about you, where are the best going? Okay, so find me on Facebook. Um, I don't have much stuff printed, as you say. I have a few pieces and anthologies, but the best place to find my work is on YouTube. Simply just put me into to the searchlight and I'll, I'll come up. There'll be maybe about 12 or 11 pieces on there. Um, and I'm adding to that all the time. So that's probably the best place to find me is on YouTube, Andy. Is that your own page you've got on YouTube, is it? So um, some of it is my own page and some of it isn't but it all comes up if you just put my name in the search engine and um, most of it will come up for you fair enough then we'll make sure we don't unlock for you definitely so brilliant now i know you're going to do we've worked we worked on the book a couple of pieces in the second half so hang around everybody because kathy is definitely a lady to watch so thank you again thank you. and we'll see you in a minute guys thank you Andy. Take, stay safe Spoke hi guys okie dokie straight over kathy I've got the best bit now. I'm enjoying to this. Over to you, my friend. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. So everyone has COVID poems, don't they, at this time? So uh, my COVID poem is a bit different because it's from the point of view of a nurse. So this little piece is called Nightingale. I am not a make you better nurse. And you don't want me at your RTA. I am a palliative trained cancer nurse. I hold your hand as you pass away, but this this isn't nursing as I know it because this is like training for the SAS. I am so far from my comfort zone. I've never been so stressed. And all day long, I shout at colleagues through a face shield, through a mask. My name is written on my apron because there isn't time to ask. And two weeks ago, we told you that you might not make it through. 
but before we placed you on a ventilator, this maze of wires and leads and tubes, you messaged, you phoned your loved ones, you thanked them for being in your life. Your voice, the ragged whispers, you said goodbye to your wife, but your battery ran out of charge and we were running out of time. So I wrapped my phone in plastic and I told you, please use mine. I'm looking after you today. Christ, I feel like I could drown. I'm trying to force compassion through this face sheet mask and gown and every layer builds a barrier. I have no idea how to climb. I want to rip these gloves off so I can feel your hands and mine. I want to stop the incessant beeping the hiss and wheeze of these machines. They're turning you on your front in bed in the hope that you can breathe and your family should be here right now. I should not be standing in this space because no matter how hard or how much I care, I can never take their place and my heart and my spirit are broken. My hands, my feet, and my face are sore and every night the same bitter prayer, please don't make me do this anymore. They turned off your machine today and I pulled your curtains round and I watched your chest rise up and fall and God, I tuned out all the sound and thought, I am not a make you better nurse and you don't want me at your RTA, but I am a palliative trained cancer nurse. So I held your hand as you passed away. Thank you. That powerful, Ooh. very, very powerful one. Do you find them um, of interest, Kathy? Obviously, you do these sort of pieces. Like I said, I knew, I knew what was getting today. Anyway, you're in such reading such emotionally draining pieces of that. Do you find you go off stage even now? You're absolutely knackered. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I mean, there that yeah. exhausted me. Yeah, then listening to it. Yeah, if there's no motion in me, there'll be no motion in them. So, yeah, I, I do my best to step into it and stand in it. Um, and that's how I write it. I step into it and stand in it and I write whatever I'm feeling. So, yeah, I, I do stand in it definitely for the pieces. Yeah, absolutely. You've got that powerful stuff. Remember, think of Nightingale Hospital in London, then that she did. Obviously, that's yeah. that. And I don't, obviously, that you're not obviously along those lines, but I've got where you're going straight away with that. That's brilliant. So, yeah, thanks, Andy. Uh, Right, okay. I think we said four today, didn't we? So, right, okay. Yeah. Let's go for number two then. So, this Where little second piece, the second piece um, I wanted to write for a long time. Um, I worked with people with addictions before for a long time. And uh, it was something that I never understood. I don't drink. I've never drank. Um, I don't take drugs. I've never taken drugs. Um, but I do have two autoimmune conditions, which cause me a lot of pain. And sometimes I have to take opioids. Um, and so sometimes I go through withdrawal coming off those. So I thought I would write an addiction piece to, to try and put that message across because a lot of people think it's very easy to, to stop drinking or, or stop taking drugs and it, it really isn't. And I really wanted a piece that would communicate what that exactly feels like. So this little piece is called Opioids. It's 24 hours since my last opioid. I can feel it starting soon, so I gather what I need. Base camp is the spare room. I have a heat pack for the shivers and a cold pack for the sweats and a basin for the vomit and that hasn't started yet. But you see, I've done this so many times that 
I know all the tricks, like if you put your wrists in ice, it stops you feeling sick and I'm already tapping and next the ticking, then the rock, then the nausea, then the shivers and the watching of the clock. It's 48 hours since my last dope we heard and I'm squatting on the loo with a basin on my knees because what else can I do? And my hair is damp and matted. My hands just won't stop shaking. If death came to get me now, there'd be nothing for the taking and my skin is so damn itchy. Christ, scratching doesn't help and I would love a tramadol, but there's none on the bathroom shelf and the medication numbs the pain and that fogginess is nice. But it numbs everything I thought to become. It numbs everything in life. It's 72 hours since my last opioid. I am writhing on the bed with Boy Scout knots in my belly. And Lord, the pressure in my head, there's this ocean of hollow sadness. I feel like I'm falling in and I'm clinging to the edges here. I don't think I can swim. And yes, I know without the tablets, my body will be sore. But you see, my daddy was a drinker. Addiction scares me more. So even though a thousand bugs crawled just beneath my skin, on the other side of this, it won't be anything like him. It's 96 hours since my last opioid. A shaft of light comes in the room. You see, I left the curtains that way. So that's what it would do. That little shaft of light is my little bit of hope. I know I'm nearly there now. I feel like I can cope. And yeah, I'm still a little ticky and my nerves are jagged raw. And I'm tearful and I'm anxious and my gut begins to gnaw and I'm feeling kind of hungry. But this is a good sign. I just need to eat and potter now. I just need to give it time. It's two weeks since my last opioid. And so many ups and downs and tantrums, tears and touchiness, so many pointless rows. It's usually two more weeks before thoughts clear and nerves calm, long walks, hot baths, good food. The love of a phenomenal man, that long suffering husband who tells me I have been a bear, but I'll be back on form living life full tilt until the next time addiction flares. Thanks, Andy. Powerful indeed. Again there, brilliant stuff. Yeah, you can see there, like, that Thank one. You. That one obviously being student. I think when you write poetry sometimes, I do this myself when I write my own personal pieces, you can see when the piece has been stewing around your head for quite a while there. And I can see that yeah. one. You're going for it. You've wanted to write that for a while. And did you find... Yeah, it's that with me. You, did you find with that piece? And you, I've got friends that some of them let a piece of stew in their head for months and they'll write it in about an hour or two. But did you find that one took quite a lot of drafts, did it, the way you record and stuff to get it right for yourself? It did take quite a lot of drafts. It probably sat with me. You're, you're saying it sat for months. That piece sat in me for years. <laughs> yeah, I'm, that's why my friend um, writes. And, I, yeah, I'm not like yeah. that. I, I can be drafting all the time, messing around with it. But you can tell that's a piece you've lived. I saw it straight away. It was yeah. Brilliant that one. So that's why Thank it's you. fantastic. Thanks. Okay. Thanks so much. Let's um, go for number three. Yeah, so I'll do this little one. This is the, the first piece that I, we chatted earlier about the, the piece that I did that the pages shook. Um so I'm gonna do this piece. Um I claimed this piece back, I rewrote it and redrafted it so that it was my piece and it wasn't that old shaky piece again. Um <laughs> so this is a piece that <laughs> I wrote this because I saw a, a woman and a, a young fellow walking through a street in Belfast near Christmas one year um, and the young boy was um, autistic and uh, it just stayed with me and it stayed in my chest, just this image of them until I, I wrote this little piece. So this is called Spectrum. It is the Saturday before Christmas 
God, I swear, every damn soul in Belfast seems intent on walking through me. My ears are bitten and bone marrow cold. Leo holds my hand like he did as a toddler, now 18 years old. His height is six foot two, but his gait is only slightly better. And he walks head down, avoids eye contact, uses the rhythm of my steps as a guide, stiffens, stops. <clears throat> coffee, he shouts loud enough that people stare then. Coffee, again. And he lets go of my hand to flap his long arms and stamp his feet. And no coffee and no nonsense, I say. We need to get home, son. I reach out a hand, but he bats it away and anchors to the ground. Ignores me. I need to choose my battles. Don't you dare, I mutter. Don't you dare have a meltdown in the middle of Corn Market. Not today, son. Please. The pain in my chest reminds me to breathe and teenagers are already circling with mobile phones at the ready. When he was younger, the meltdowns would terrify me. He would throw himself to the ground, limbs flailing while I froze, not knowing how to make it stop. And after, I would sit on the floor with his head in my lap and stroke his hair as much to soothe myself as him. I had no idea Hard to love this child, I was empty, hollow, as if someone had carved out my core. It was years before I realized I was grieving for the healthy child I thought I had a right to, for the absent father who couldn't cope, for all that I used to be and all that I would never become. But I remember the exact moment it changed. Leo was six. We were on holiday in a dilapidated two-birth caravan. It had rained all week. Desperate to be outside, we donned raincoats, wellingtons, headed to the rock pools with buckets and nets in hand, and Leo hunkered down. Reached out to touch the water with his fingers, giggled as the ripples made their way to the edge. His laughter, birdsong in the air. Circles, he boasted, as if he had invented them. And then he looked straight at me, not past me, not through me, but straight at me. His eyes locked on mine and I saw for the first time the way that sunlight sprinkled gold dust on his eyelashes, the way that laughter punctured his cheeks with dimples. Yes, Leo, you clever boy, those are circles. But he was gone as quickly as he had arrived, silent once more, face flat but it didn't matter because something had connected. We had connected. My boy was reachable. I can make this happen again. In Belfast, the streetlights turn raindrops to fireflies above our heads. And I study Leo for signs that this is something other than defiance, but he isn't rocking on his feet or tapping on his thigh. And there is no low hum that usually comes before an episode. This bugger is huffing. <laughs> right, son, come on, I try. Immediately know the tone is too harsh. Watch him crumple in tears, sear his face, and nothing is worth this. Standing my ground isn't worth this. That coffee smells good. The guilt is so heavy, I have trouble stepping towards him with my outstretched hand. Come on, big man, I say. Let's go and get that coffee, eh? And there it is. That smile, 
the one that punctures his cheeks with dimples as he looks straight at me, see? I made it happen again. And my forever boy takes my hand. Thank you. Mesmerising, absolutely mesmerising there, Kathy. You, you almost okay. you, I see you remember, you nearly remember crying that one then. So that's, that's, a, that's a good job. Well done there. Oh, thanks, Andy. <laughs> that's why brilliant. Okay, we're going to have a big, we're going to straight to the big finale now, aren't we? So. Yeah, I'm going to do this little piece. This little piece is, is kind of dear to me because it's about my mum. Um, and it's called 17. It started with post-it notes that littered every surface of the living room, these luminous squares of green and yellow that yelled repeated commands, pay window cleaner, pay credit union, ring Kathy, pay window cleaner, pay credit union, ring Kathy, except the window cleaner never got paid, nor the credit union, and you never ever rang me. And then there were the things that I told you that you forgot and the things that you told me a thousand times. That day, I turned up to visit you during election time and you closed the door in my face. You told me you were sick of Sinn Féin canvassers and you weren't voting that year. And the time you bought me chocolates for my birthday and you left the room, came back in, thanked me for them and ate them all. Even coffee ones and you hated coffee. And the phone calls in the small hours of the morning to tell me that you were worried that dad hadn't come home when dad had been dead for five years. And there were countless visits to the doctor, diagnosis of loneliness, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, psychosis, but none of those were helpful because none of them were right. 10 years in the elderly care told me what this was. This was dementia, but you were 48. You were found one night wandering in the rain in your nightdress, barefoot, soaked through. It took three months in a unit for them to decide that this was early onset, early onset Alzheimer's. Three seconds for me to decide that you would live with me. And the first night you had a delirium that had you ripping the curtains from the rails, biting, kicking, screaming, thrashing, spitting. Unable to find the bathroom, you soiled yourself. And you cried like a child, so I took you to your home where you attacked me in the night thinking I was an intruder. You thought I was stealing from you. Christ, you phoned the police. So finally, after guilt that sucked the very core from me, came an acceptance of sorts that I could not continue and I placed you into care. Where you flatlined into a shell of all that you had been and I admit that visits became painful, less frequent. I consoled myself with the fact that you would not remember whether I had been to visit or not. And years passed. I had already lost you. A phone call came to work one day to tell me that you had been admitted to hospital with a chest infection. Where amidst your rage and delirium, they told me it was terminal lung cancer and transferred you to hospice. And you were 59. I visited one day during music therapy, stood frozen in the doorway as I watched you dance in your chair to the music of the kinks. As much as your frailty would allow, and you were lit up with youth and joy and something I had never seen in you, hope. 
As I approached, you turned to me with your face full of mischief and you said, I'm Keg New Love. What's your name? I love the Kings. Do you like them? <laughs> you had introduced yourself with your maiden name. And something inside me folded as I realized that this is who you were before my father broke you. But even in the moment, I knew I was being given a gift because I was meeting my mum before she was my mum. So I played along. I sat beside you. You told me you were 17, that you were dating a boy called Sam. And we talked about the music you loved and the places you went to and all the things your mother wouldn't let you do. You made me laugh so hard. So we established a routine of sorts and I would arrive and find you vacant, unengaged. I would play the music of the kinks and there you were, 17 year old keg knew and I fell in love with you, <laughs> with your cheek and your charm, your infectious laugh and your insatiable passion for the kinks. On the night I lost you the second time, the nurse said you'd been distressed, that you had been calling out and unable to settle. You should put on the music of the kinks and left the room. To gone back a few minutes later to turn the volume down and find you gone. That still tickles me to think that as the kinks sang out, oh yeah, you really got me. Someone came and got you. <laughs> you know, the medical records will say that you died aged 59. But me, I know different because the kinks were playing. You died aged 17. Thanks, Andy. Wow. Wow. For tremendous. There's plenty I'm going to say about that, but we'll sort of talk about Mike in a minute. But that was a tremendous way of finishing it off, that, Kathy. I take it, um, it when you've done longer sets, do you finish that piece off a lot of sets? Because I. I couldn't, if I'd um, done that piece, I would have struggled to be doing a piece after that, really. It'd be so personal. Yeah, it is a personal piece. Um, it's actually a piece, and you were talking earlier on about 10-minute poems. It is a 10-minute a piece. It's a longer piece, um, but I always do that one for open mic. It was a piece that I wrote for Dementia Charity, um, and it's been on the radio a few times over here, so it's a piece that is very close to my heart, but yeah, yeah it kind of leaves me heavy a wee bit afterwards, you're right. <laughs> I think it's that sort of poem if you're having a live set, don't you need a you need a because you would need a stiffer ink after that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Kathy, hang around, obviously, seriously. I need to speak to you off mic, but that's it for today. We're sure. all done now. But a tremendous pleasure today. I've been honoured to have you on today. So thank you again for today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andy. Really enjoyed it. Thank it's you. Been brilliant as my side as well. Right, guys and girls, as always, as Don Callas says, stay safe and stay over. We'll see you all soon. Take care. Spock on me.